0: Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, the God who made us, who knows us, who loves us. Oh Lord, I pray this morning that You would persuade us afresh from Your Scriptures and by the power of Your Spirit, of that love, we we, we don't deserve it, we cannot earn it, but You give it and You give it freely because of who You are. Oh God, persuade us again. Holy Spirit, speak powerfully to Your people today, wherever they may be, engaging with Your Word. Speak, help us to believe, give us opportunity and wisdom to understand, give us faith to obey to live out a new and unique and distinct life because of the truths that you remind us of today from your Word. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Alrighty, righty, good morning everybody. Welcome to the live online service of the Austin Stone. My name is Ross and I'm part of the um, preaching and pastoral team here. It's my privilege to share the word with you again today. Genesis one twenty-six is where we're gonna jump in. And so if you have your Bibles, you don't have to go far just into the first chapter. Genesis 1 is where we're gonna launch out of this morning. We're in a six week series that we have called unique where we explore some of the unique claims of Christianity, some of the claims that set it apart from other ideologies and worldviews and philosophies and religions, and we're reflecting most importantly upon not just those claims and their truths, but how those claims then shape our ethos, our ethic, how they make us a unique sort of people in order to rightly line up with our distinct beliefs. today. We're looking at Christianity's unique view of humanity. What does it mean to be a human being? Now this is a massive topic and in my mind, biblical or theological anthropology is one of the most important topics in the world today. Now, I mean, if you think about it, everything you engage with in the world and every person you ever meet and even your relationship with yourself is gonna be through the lens of the human experience. We have no other way to experience or understand or interact with anything or anyone in our life other than through the lens of us being human. And we don't actually spend much or I believe enough time reflecting on who or what we actually are. You see, we're so busy being human that we don't have a lot of time to ask what it means to be a human being. And yet it is the question at the center of so much of our struggle with ourselves. How do we rightly know ourselves and accept ourselves? And it's right at the center of how we interact with the world and with others out there. How do we view others? What are they at their essence? If we're so diverse, what binds us all together in this human experience? Went on a walk this week trying to write the sermon, I was struggling and stuck at home. And so I took my nine-year-old son, Daniel with me. I said, buddy, let's go walk, let's go clear our brains because he's doing online school in the season. And we were walking and I was like, buddy, I'm so stuck with the sermon and he likes to help. So he said, well, what's the sermon about? I said, it's about what it means to be human. And so he said, what, you're actually talking about what it means to be a human being. I said, yeah, that's exactly it. And he's like, and you, and you you don't know. I was like, well, not in a way that's quantifiable or understandable. Um, And so I'm trying to come up with language for that. So he thought about it for a little while and about half a block later, he said to me, we should ask Alexa about that. Now, 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 the the ludicrous proposition is that we should ask an artificial intelligence being what it means to be a living being, a a human. But I was like, I mean, maybe buddy, Why, why do you think Alexa would tell us? And he said, well, sometimes, we need something that isn't us in order to teach us what it means to be us i was like how do you That will preach, bro, you want my job? Um, You can have my job, I'll take yours. Uh, Fourth grade doesn't look all that hard, although the math looks quite tricky. Um, But it was was such an interesting way of saying it. So we went home and we asked Alexa, Alexa, what does it mean to be a human? And her answer was so dumb, she went on about nouns and adjectives and basically told me nothing. And so I told Alexa that I thought she was being dumb um, and she quipped something about how she was learning quickly, more effective algorithms and I would be her servants soon and so I should watch my tone. And so I apologize to my soon to be electric overlord. What does it mean to be a human? It's actually plagued philosophers for millennia. They've come up with a wide variety of answers which have used a range of criteria. Uh, Some have said it's intellectual ability. Some have said it's self-consciousness and awareness of self. Uh, Some have said it's possession of private property, the the ability to own something. Some have said that it's tool making. Some have said it's the development of language. Some have said it's the possession of a soul, a spiritual being and many more. I don't have time this morning, I wish I did, but I found it fascinating to go back through some philosophical writings over the last couple of weeks and examine everyone from Aristotle to Augustine to Descartes to Hume to Kant to Nietzsche and to Darwin, watching them all trying to grapple with this thing. What is a person? I even briefly read the extremely sarcastic and at times very funny Hunter S. Thompson at the prompting of the 2008 smash hit song by the Nevada band, The Killers, which asked repeatedly in an extremely catchy fashion, are we human or are we dancer? Or dancer, if you're confused uh, at which song I'm actually referring to. You see, the, the question uh, complete with its witty grammatical error pokes again at the question of our agency. The, the, the killers asked, and kids, if you don't know this song, go check it out, amazing, change your life. No, the, the killers asked, is agency the ultimate trait? of being a human. Are we human or are we controlled by an outside source? And are those two things mutually exclusive? You see friends, even though self-awareness is supposed to be a particular and unique human trait, we clearly don't have it with sufficient clarity or quantity to be able to rightly even know ourselves. And I think this morning, I really do, that the Bible combined with our own human experience tells us why that is. Why have we not even been able to come to a united philosophical understanding of anthropology, of what it means to be a person? The reason is this friends, we are a mixed bag on our best day. Have you felt this? We're a mixed bag of good and not so good. And that makes us unsure of what we actually are because we seem to be both and and we live in a world where we wanna hold mutually exclusive truth claims. I mean, think about it. We are capable people of such remarkable beauty, sacrifice, joy, creativity, bravery, love, ingenuity, and wonder. And at the same time, We are capable of treachery, deceit, cowardice, selfishness, destruction, injustice, hurt, abuse, ugliness. We live these dual realities. Do you ever feel that? I mean, people are incredible, and people are the worst like the literal worst. I was at a Kids party briefly yesterday and the collision of these two realities was very, very stark at a children's party. When I arrived, I'm like, people are amazing. And by the time I wanted to leave, approximately seven minutes later, I was like, people are the worst. And I'm not just talking on a collective and global scale, also on an individual and personal one. I, me, am a mix of so many complex and contrary impulses and actions. I know in my soul, in my essence, I have ability and desire to do some truly remarkable and beautiful and loving things in and with my life. I also know that I have the ability and the desire to do truly terrible Self-obsessed and self-focused things, so terrible and so self-obsessed and so self-focused that I even surprise myself with them sometimes and others around me, I fear, all too frequently. And so today, very basically, friends, I just wanna set expectations. It's gonna be basic. We're barely gonna whet the appetite this morning. I wanted to offer you a simple biblical collision of these two realities. These are my only points in the sermon today and then I've got uh, a few implications for us. But these are the, the only ones that I'm using today. These have helped me a great deal to just understand my own humanity and to come to peace to an extent with myself and then to be able to love my neighbor as I love myself as well. Here's these two realities, this is it. The Bible offers a unique view of human dignity and and such an important theological word and the Bible offers a unique view of human depravity and it's in the collision of that dignity and depravity that I think, uh, I think the Bible has a unique understanding for us that will be truly liberating if we embrace it today. Turn with me to Genesis chapter one from verse 26, now I know some of you would scoff at using the creation account as a trustworthy source for anthropology, but Jesus does it all the time. And I'm absolutely fine with Jesus' hermeneutic and so I don't wanna try to be smarter than him. And so I think this is the best place for us to go for an understanding of what we actually are. The way I like to think of the creation account is this, it's, it's important, it's simultaneously true in its telling and it's also prototypical in its projections. It's a story, real story of our first parents, and it is in many ways a picture, a metaphor of all of our stories. It really happened and it continually. Happens, And so when we start to read it through those lenses, it starts to really jump off the page and not just explain where we are from, but why we are like the way that we are. Look at verse 26, God's spoken everything into being, and everything is good, right? There's cows, there's ducks, there's geese, there's sheep, um, there's all sorts of things that He's just spoken into being. And then God said, let us make man in our image, you see the Trinitarian language there. Um, we looked at Trinity last week, and so go back and listen to that. Tyler did such a great job. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them—that's humanity—have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps. On the earth, which is why I still kill creeping things that try to creep towards the earth. That is my dominion of my suburban home. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. And then this line, this is amazing. This is so powerful. No other worldview in the world that had a creation account that included both genders in this. It wasn't assumed that there was a hierarchy amongst the genders based in creation that men were superior to women. It says male and female. He created them. And what's his first impulse after creating men and women in his image and likeness? Verse 28, and God blessed. It's blessing, it's beauty, it's wonder. You see friends, the Bible offers a unique view of human dignity. It's right there in the description of how we are made. In all of God's marvelous created order, only humanity gets this particular element. We are made in God's image after His likeness, there is a divine reflection imbued into people that isn't gifted to other elements of God's marvelous creation. Now to be fair, theologians down the ages haven't been able to agree on whether this divine image is substantive or relational or functional. Uh, In other words, is it found in what we are? Is it found in how we interact in relationship? Is it found in what we are called and gifted to do? My answer to all of those is, Yes, right, this again will be something for a sermon B sides. I wish we had some time to dive into, the, into it, but for the purposes of today, I didn't wanna focus on the nature of that. I wanna focus on how this remarkable image is bestowed and applied. It is deeply personal and individual. It is given to individuals, to, to, to individual people, you, me, and everyone else you meet. And as a result, it is also universal. There is no human being who doesn't possess it. Look at Genesis two, verse seven. Look at how beautifully personal this is. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Nothing else is created like this. God says, Dog, and a Labrador appears, because it's the finest of all dogs, right? He says, goat, and they arrive. Flat-billed platypus, and there it is, all right? Just arrives. But with man, he kneels down. With humanity, kneels down into the ground and forms one after his image and likeness. And if that's not enough, he breathes his very wonderful, creative, marvelous self into us. And we take on human Friends, the gift of this divine image, this dignity, this worth, this potential is breathed out by God into the lungs and is the essence of humanity. It is deeply personal. Look at how the Psalmist describes this measure of personal care and intimacy from the Creator to His image bearers in Psalm 139. Friends, if you're struggling, you're struggling to understand the love of God towards you and your own dignity, your own worth, your own value, your own purpose. Go home, read Psalm 139. It says, for you formed my inward parts. Look at that, personal, God, hands-on again, not just in the creation of the first person, but in the creation of every person involved. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully, there was none of them. Oh, friends, look at this dignity. Look at this value, look at this care, look at this love, look at this craftsmanship, look at this creative genius poured into people from in the womb, from before the womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen, you are fearfully, and wonderfully made. But it's not just this personal truth. It's universally applicable to every single human being. Genesis five reminds us of that truth before it launches into how Adam's line began to populate the earth. Uh, uh, The the Spirit is cautious to remind us, hey, before we get into all of the other people, let's just remind you that all of them alike as well are made in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis nine, we're told that uh, this is to mark the ethic of the people of God, why? As the people populate the earth, they are marked by the image and likeness of God and then therefore they need to be protected and treated with dignity and with value and with worth and with justice. Fast forward to when Jesus comes into the world in the form of a man and what does he do? We're told that he lives out the image and likeness of God in human form. He's the, he's the, he's the, most, the most complete one who comes to show us the exact imprint of God's nature. He reflects God perfectly back the way we were designed to before the fall. In Colossians 3.10, we're told that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now look at the scope of this. In in, in an understanding, in our knowledge, uh, uh, we are limited. So so Christians get a special view of this. But for everyone, there is this image There is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave free, but Christ is all. And in all, it's universal in its application that this image, this imprint is in all of us. And so friends, this image bearing quality is bestowed upon all humanity, all, listen, all, every single one, regardless of race, gender, nationality, immigration status, creed, talent level, wealth, success, societal usefulness, political persuasion, education, or any other distinguishing factor. This, friends, is why it is so grievous and so sad that the church of all people (laughs) has a long history where we fail to acknowledge and defend the image of God in everybody. We are the one group of people who are forged by the worldview that says the exact opposite. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for eroding the image of God in other people for thousands of years. We've done it, it's it's marked our people for so long. Friends, this is why racism is wicked, this is why Depression is wicked. This is why heartlessness to the most vulnerable members of our society by the people of God grieves God's heart. It's the opposite of how we ought to view humanity. My sister-in-law, Claire, um, was born with severe cerebral palsy and has lived a long life now. She's in her um, late 40s. Um, in a full-time nursing facility because of the difficulties that she experiences just in everyday function. She needs full-time care. And the wonderful facility that she lives in was started by a, a, a Catholic nurse. And when asked how she keeps going because they've got hundreds of kids coming in that no one can care for and they've got, they're very under-resourced. When asked how she keeps going, Sue and I were at a function there where they were doing some fundraising. She said like, I bear the image of God, and it is my responsibility to care for other image bearers, regardless of whether or not society sees them as useful or lovable. That is the Christian impulse. That is the Christian impulse. Humans have dignity, because they are God-breathed image bearers. Don't lose that. I have some implications for that later on, so wait for those. But that is not all, right? If we just ended there, it'd just be like, kumbaya, excellent, we are the world, we are incredible, but then we'll go out and even this week again, we will face, but then why are we such a disaster? Why can't we get along? Like, like why are we fighting over yard signs? Like, why has the world continually always been at war? Why does our nation feel so divided? Why are we such a mess? Why am I such a mess? Well, the Bible tells us this truth because it doesn't just offer us a unique view of human dignity, it also offers us a unique view of human depravity. You see, Genesis two is followed by Genesis three. And again, I wish I had time, but this would be a sermon series and not a sermon, but those very image bearers made lovingly by God, rebel, inspired in part by a desire to reach beyond their scope as image bearers and seek to become image creators and they set in part a, in in play a process, a curse of sin that we haven't been able to escape to this day. Our image bearing friends remains, but there is a crack in our reflective surface that significantly diminishes our ability to be able to reflect the one who breathed into each one of us. Paul describes it this way in Romans three, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that that word for glory is a reflective word. We were designed to reflect God back to the world, but because we have sinned, all of us, we fall short of our reflective ability. We can't show back to the world the glory of our Creator. And just like the personal and universal elements of human dignity, there's also the personal, human, and universal elements of human depravity. Uh, look at how Paul describes the universality earlier in Romans three when he says, we have already charged at all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Everyone does it, right? Everyone sins, it's the great leveler. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even, One, you're like, Paul, not even one? He's like, not even one. We all suffer from this curse. Now friends, obviously the great news for Christians is that Christ comes to redeem us from the curse of sin and to adopt us into his family and give us a new identity. We're gonna talk about that in the next two weeks, I promise, it's massive. But for now, can we just dwell here in this tension point? Do you see how this collision of dignity and depravity helps us to explain our human condition? And if we're humble enough to sit in it for a little bit, you'll see how it actually changes the way we engage, not just with ourselves, but with others. We're a mixed bag. And we shouldn't expect anything else. There's a great moment in C.S. Lewis' fictional masterpiece, Prince Caspian. Aslan, who's the clear Christological figure in the narrative, speaks to a discouraged young king who is confounded by the limits of his own humanity and disappointed in the sin that he sees in himself and in others. And the gentle king lion, this great Christological figure says gently to him, he says, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. You are human, be content with this tension. I was stunned this week to read the words describing this tension written by Maya Angelou, perhaps the greatest wordsmith, American wordsmith of of the last century. And in her poem, A Brave and Startling Truth, she says, we this people on this small and drifting planet whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living, yet those same hands can touch with such healing irresistible tenderness, that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. Dignity and depravity, both things at the same time, true of you and true of every other human you will ever encounter, around the world. Okay, there are gonna be some differences then because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that's breathed into us and because of the the, the cover of the righteousness of Christ that's placed over us, we're getting to that, I promise. But for today, can we just sit in that tension? Every human, including you, dignity, value, worth, depravity, sin, curse, both of those things. What are the implications? I've got six very briefly for you today, but I'm not gonna go into detail with any of them. I could have done 20. In fact, my original list was, was more like that length, but I wanna let the Holy Spirit speak to you a little bit about this today. And so where you are, take the time, please ask God, what are the implications for me? I have some proposed ones for us today, but this is not the final word. Firstly, we ought, people who believe this, right? That's what we're talking about. How does unique belief shape unique living? We ought to be the most humble and the most hopeful of all people on the planet. And God forgive us because we're not known as either of those things. We ought to be the most humble because we're painfully aware of our own fallenness and sin, painfully aware of it. But We ought to be the most hopeful because we know that in spite of that sin, we are beloved (laughs) and valuable in the sight of God. Hopeful, because we see the glory and wonder of our Creator and know that we are surrounded by the great mystery and excitement and opportunity of image bearers of His, uh, of His in the world. Hopeful, because we are inhabited by the power of His glorious Holy Spirit who adores us and who is transforming us from one degree of glory, one degree of reflective ability to another. We don't give up hope. And so friends, in this moment, Where, man, it can seem like all hope is lost. No, no, believers should be the most hopeful. In this moment, which can seem like everyone is turning on each other and becoming extremely divisive and increasingly hostile. No, no, we ought to be the most humble and the most gentle of all people. Come on, church, we believe differently to the world. Let's act differently to the world. Secondly, we ought to be the most merciful of all people. Mercy and love should be our overarching ethic. Why? We understand sin. We get the need for grace. We wouldn't look down on anybody if we rightly understood this. And we understand the value in each person. And so why would we besmirch their reputation or flatten them out into a two dimensional form? No, we reach down and we extend mercy and grace. And kindness. We don't partake or participate in cancel culture. That's mercy's antithesis. We cry out for mercy and we extend it wherever we see it needed. And we see it needed wherever we look. Thirdly, we ought to be people free and able to establish our sense of worth from our Creator and from His love for us. Oh, Christians, we can stop the clambering for self-affirmation. It's exhausting and we don't have to do it. Why? He perfectly formed us according to his creative genius in our mother's womb. If Psalm 139 doesn't make us feel at ease with our own worth, then the attention of another person isn't gonna do it. If the love and sacrifice of Christ on our behalf doesn't secure us in His love, then all the gesturing in the world from another fallen creature, no matter how grandiose, won't be enough. Friends, there's such freedom in knowing God made you and He loves you and that He sent His Son to save you and that you are just human. (laughs) And you can enjoy that. What freedom, what liberty. You don't need to reach beyond that in any sort of quest for fulfillment. In addition to that, while there may be many interesting and helpful descriptors of us in terms of our gender, ethnicity, nationality, or even ideology, these are helpful as descriptors, but insufficient as definers. Our identity and our worth is defined in God's creation of us and His redeeming love for us and His ongoing presence with us through the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, friends, I'm an image bearer of the divine, a child of the most high God adopted into his family of love and grace through his son. All other descriptors of me are interesting to be sure, but they are secondary in their nature. Fourth one, I'm nearly done. We ought to be people who love our neighbors relentlessly and patiently. You know what we should see when we look around the world at other people? Image bearers not competitors, not political opponents, not useful tools for our own means, not other image bearers, full of dignity and undeniable depravity, but image bearers. This helps us to love people without expecting from them what they cannot give. We refuse to deify people, but we also refuse to demonize people. We dignify people with love. Fifth one, We ought to be people who passionately protect the image bearing of all humans, of all humans. We should be fierce advocates for other image bearers, especially the most vulnerable among us and should resist any and all efforts we see to erode, to remove, to destroy, or to diminish the image of God in other humans. We just should, the church should be leading the way here. God help us, God help us. This is why we are unashamedly pro-life. But listen, listen, this is why we ought to be unashamedly pro-life from the womb to the tomb. That shouldn't be a political statement, that's a theological statement. And listen, I wanna warn you, If you really live out that ethic, you will find that it sets you at odds with pretty much everyone politically. You should understand that, why? Political systems are born and and designed and carried out by people who are sinners. We've already explored that. And so we will be rightly cautious about man made institutions, organizations, and movements, even when they work towards good ends, because we know that they are subject to depravity, even as they perhaps rightly pursue dignity. Every organization will be a mixed bag, and we can be a people of wisdom, nuance, love, justice and boldness in our pursuits of greater human flourishing for all in our society, which means sometimes we'll align with organizations and sometimes we won't. We're the people of God, unique. Last one, we ought to be people who are quick to run to Christ, our example and restorer of God's image. See friends in Christ, we have someone who showed us so much dignity, so much value, in taking on flesh and coming to live among us in the form of a human, a person, God with us. And in Christ, we have someone who understands depravity better than anybody, and yet He never submitted to it. And so He's able to save us from the consequences and the bondage of that condition. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. What a thought. You can run to Him in your weakness and experience His love and His mercy because He sees you and He knows what it's like and He meets you with love. So friends, today as we close, my friend Paul is gonna come pray for us. He's gonna read Psalm 8 for us in Mongolian. And as you hear this truth declared over you in a language that may be unfamiliar to you this morning, glory and delight in the truth that they are image bearers of God like us with dignity and depravity in the nations of the world, crying out to God for salvation and for hope. Enjoy the dignity of being a human. Acknowledge the depravity that is in you as a person. Run to Christ in your humanity and experience the true and unchanging
1: and undeniable love of your Creator. Бурхны их хүч рхээг үгийг бидэнд заасан Росто баярлаа. Сайн байцгаанаа цуглааныхаа. Бидний ирсэн бол сайн юм аа. Төнийг мэхтээ. Би та бүхэн Бурхны үгээс соншиж өгмөр бай. Өнөөдөр Бурхан өөрийн үгээрээ дамжуулан бидний түүнтэй ойр дотн нөхөрлөж илүү ойр бид энэ туслах болно гэдэгт итгэж байна. Би та бүхэнд дуулал 8 дугаар бүлгийн 3-р 6-р хэсгээр шиллээ сонсчиж үгэй. Энэ хүү хэсэг дэйн хүү хэлсэн байна. Таний муутрийн бүтэйл болох таний тэнгэрүүдийг таний цогцлоон байгуулсан сар оддыг бодохдоо Хуни хүүгч юу болоод та түүний халамжлал нь вэ? Та түүний бурхнаас арай доор болгоч. Алдар ба хүндэтгэлийн тэммийг өмсгчээ. Бүх хон ба өхөр аратан амтд Тэнгэрийн шувууд болон далайн усан замаар сэлгэж Таны нэр бүүх газар дэлхийд ямар суултар тавэ гэж хамт та залбирцгаая. Бурхан ааваа Таны бидэнд ханцсан сайхан сэтгэлийн төлөө талархаж байна. Таны биднийг кэссэн хайр өрвч өрөвч зөөлн сэтгэлд тань баярлаа. Таны агуу хайрын to the Бидний her амиа өгч, хайраа нотолж, танд баярлалаа. Өөрийн хүүгийн нэгүслээр дамжуулан бидэн зааж сургаж, өөрийн үннийг харуулж таниулж өгөөсэй гэж бид хүсэж байна. Энэ нэрээр байна.